You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Life is being in bed with you. Everything else is just waiting. Will you? Yes, I will. <laughs> I intend to love you until I die. Me first. Counselor. My back's against the wall, man. Money problems are serious problems. I will set it up. 625 kilos. We're probably looking at 20 million. I know why I'm in it. Do you? It's a nice ring. Want to know how much it's worth? I always thought a law degree was a license to steal, but you hadn't really capitalized on it. I'm really worried, maybe. It's going to be all right. If you pursue this road that you've embarked upon, you will eventually come to moral decisions that will take you completely by surprise. You should be careful what you wish for. You might not get it. Counselor, we've got a problem. The shipment, it's gone. I had a call from our business partners. These people are out 20 mil. They think we're all involved, don't they? No. Just you, counselor. You. They don't believe in coincidences. They've heard of them. They've just never seen one. You're in trouble. When the axe comes through the door, I'll already be gone. What do you think I should do? How bad is it? We're all done here. It's too late. I can vanish in a heartbeat. Can you? The slaughter to come is probably beyond our imagining. You are the world you have created. And when you cease to exist, this world that you have created will also cease to exist. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. John Walker. 
Hey, Mike. And, uh, you know, I've been meaning to tell you this for a long time, but God, you have the most luscious podcast in all of Christendom. Also back in the booth is Mr. James Lawrence. My podcasting has no temperature. This week, we are looking at the 2013 film from director Ridley Scott, The Counselor. Written by Cormac McCarthy, the film is a sprawling, sun-baked neo-noir, wherein our titular counselor, played by Michael Fassbender, gets involved in the drug trade only to set off a spiral of tragic events. Boasting a stunning cast of current celebrities, the film was not well-received upon its theatrical release. We'll explore that and a whole lot more as we go along. If you haven't seen The Counselor, before, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, James, when was the first time you saw The Counselor, and what did you think? I saw it on a cinema run uh, when it first came out. Now, I was going into this a bit weary because I'd been severely burnt a year before with a little film called Prometheus, um, which I have since gone back and, and do adore quite a bit. But it was quite unique because... I'm not a huge fan of Cormac McCarthy, but No Country for All Men, The Road, Blood Meridian, I've, I've read and, and seen his kind of like notable works. So when I went in to watch The Counselor, um, with a, a stellar A star cast, by the way, with like there was no film around the time that had a cast quite like this, you were thinking, right, he's going to be back on his, his, his game now. This is going to be Ridley at his finest. And there was a period when the film ended of, of just silence in the cinema for a good couple of minutes where people didn't really know what to think and, and how to digest it. And again, I thought, Ridley, you've done it again. You've, you've caught me unaware and you've, you've disappointed me once more, but it stayed with me and it really, really sat with me. And, and I thought about it a lot and waited a, a while until it came out on, on, on Blu-ray at the time and, and watched it again. And, I just found myself warming to it more and more and more. Um, I've lost count of how many times I've seen it now, but when we last spoke, Mike, and, and you threw out there something about Ridley Scott and the counselor, I jumped at the chance to talk about it because it has genuinely become one of my favorite Ridley Scott films. I think there's a lot to take on board, a lot of things that people missed initially the first time round, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of this film. I absolutely adore it. How about you, John? I don't remember when I saw it first. I, th- because I do a, a movie podcast called Movie Schmovie, where my friends Ron and Steve and I, we, t- we talk mostly about kind of current movie news, current, like whatever's going on. And every now and then we single out a particular film and really dive into it. But most of the time we're doing like, you know, segments on something new. But I saw this movie and no one else on the show saw it. And I must have seen it right when it hit home viewing. So maybe like a couple of months or something after you saw it, James. And then like... I, cause I was wait, I remember waiting about a year to talk about it on the podcast. And then we finally did an episode and, and it was a category we had created called You Were Warned, which is sort of like designed for this type of movie where you wouldn't exactly say, Oh, it's great. You're going to love it, but you do kind of recommend people see it. So they develop their own feelings and so that they see this, this handful of like super memorable scenes that are spaced out across this movie. And then of course it's fun to ponder, like, how did it kind of miss? an audience that might have embraced it with this cast and with this material that I do think, like you said, James, it resonates like the, you know, the way this story commits to its idea is, is something that not a lot of these kind of even, even hard boiled crime stories don't often commit to the idea of you're fucked the way that this movie does. Yeah. This is the definition of noir for me. You know, you're fucked at the beginning and you're even more fucked by the end. This movie, you are, you're fucked. Brad Pitt is fucked. Javier Bardem is fucked. 
<laughs> Every, everybody, and for sure, Penelope Cruz majorly fucked. Maybe even fucked and killed on camera. We don't know. But wow. Yeah, everybody in here. And then you've got one hell of a femme fatale with Cameron Diaz. It's wild. I just saw this one recently for the first time. I've owned this on Blu-ray for a while because this episode has been on the to talk about list for probably three years now. And we're finally doing it. I was very much in that. What the fuck am I watching when I watch it the first time? Uh, the only thing I knew about it was that Cameron Diaz fucks a car. And I had no idea what that meant. I'm like, how, how do you fuck a car? I mean, especially if you're a woman, how do you fuck a car? Cause I can see, you know, you got the, the gas, you got the, ex, uh, the uh, exhaust pipe. You got so many ways to fuck a car if you're a guy, but as a woman, how do you fuck a car? I just have to know the gynecological details of this. And they're not scared to uh, talk about that at all. It doesn't help the films getting you into the film at the start when one of the wildest lines of the film comes right at the stop at the top of the film um during the the kind of like um desert no it's not a desert scene but where the cheetahs are kind of chasing the rabbits around and they're cooking steaks and it's kind of showing the the bizarre excess that everybody's kind of living in in this in this kind of fantasy world and there's the immortal line that truth has no temperature and the first time you hear that you can't help but snigger there's no way around it because it's kind of insane line really and I, I suppose it kind of comes down to delivery as well but that kind of sets you stall once you get past that line anything that comes afterwards is not going to really be that much of a surprise no, it is interesting, like how deep fried the dialogue is in that sense of just being so, it's just like, and it's got lots of big asks like that. I think throughout the movie, there are these, these moments that are dramatically interesting and character wise, they're interesting, but there is this kind of the fact that it's a screenplay by a renowned novelist, I think had to weigh into the fact that everybody just said, we're going to take this dialogue seriously and we're just going to play it. And we're not going to, you know, if uh, who knows, maybe he was rewriting on the set. I don't know what the relationship was like there. Traditionally, Ridley Scott does a lot of sort of script amalgamating and making choices on the fly. I don't know how you do that with a novelist as respected as Cormac McCarthy as the writer, but supposedly he was on set throughout. So maybe they were making little changes and they, they weren't like sticking to this weird rigid script, but it kind of feels like everybody's treating these somewhat like this kind of purple prose. They're treating it as though we've already agreed this is all great dialogue, you know? And and so, I don't know, just selling it without a wink, really, I think in a way it kind of helps the movie have this bizarre tone that we're trying to describe because it is extremely heightened and it is very poetic. And some of those lines land, but a lot of them are just kind of weird lines, especially the first couple times you hear them where you're just like, does that mean anything? Is that That's the kind of thing you would read in a novel maybe and would be fine with, but hearing an actor and maybe an actor who can sometimes struggle with making it work. I don't know. I think that that is where the movie gets that sort of somehow it's a B movie on top of this intense pedigree that it has. Well, and it revels in its B moviness. It revels in the trashiness of it. I mean, just the excess. You talked about the excess of it, like the cooking steaks, the diamond encrusted collars for the cheetahs that Cameron Diaz and Javier Bardem have. It's like Raul and Sylvia <laughs> or Silvio, which always reminds me of Mickey and Sylvia. When you think of like American films and, and they always kind of have these waves of, of picking different kind of cultures and, and fleshing them out. We obviously had the gangster films and, and the mafia films in the seventies and then eighties. It was more South American gangs like bleeding into, into the four. And then in the, where we are now in the, in the 2010s or well, where we were at the time, 
it was cartel and, and Mexico was like the big, big thing. And, and, and during a period of about four or five years, you had Sicario documentaries like Cartel Land and Narco Culta, End of Watch and, and even Savages like the Oliver Stone film kind of glamorizing this cartel violence. And, and it's one of those, it's to me seems like the utmost extreme romanticizing these kind of people because the cartels are notoriously the worst people on the planet. And it was probably kind of came into the boom as well with the things like Reddit and, and 4chan where these videos um, that are talked about on in, in the counselor as well are, are you know, readily available for people to see to a degree if, if you are so morbidly inclined and yeah, trying to fit it into that, that time of, of all these films coming out, but it being so completely different from all the rest as well, probably caught people off guard quite a bit. Now I've only seen the director's cut of this. So the, what is it? Two hours and a lot of minutes, 17 minutes. So I've not seen what was shown theatrically, but the director's cut of it. I mean, just the pacing of this film is so interesting in the way that is so often it's two characters talking, cut to the next scene, it's two characters talking, cut to the next scene, it's two characters talking, cut to the next scene, and it's cartel business, and then repeat. And there's a lot of times, it's almost like the Kuleshov effect, where I'm like, okay, these guys have to be involved in the other story that's going on, but I don't know what their relationship is to the sets of two people that are talking constantly. You know, you've got Penelope Cruz and Fassbender at the beginning, then you've got Fassbender and Bruno Ganz, I love that scene, them talking, and then I think it's uh, Javier Bardem and Cameron Diaz, they're talking, and then you cut to these guys who are fixing up this truck to send across the border. And then, like I said, it's like, you get the guy, the Green Hornet character, who is buying dog biscuits for his dog. And then even then, it's two people talking. This movie is so rich for actors. And the scenes of two really powerful actors going toe-to-toe with each other and having these conversations. But man, if you're not in for that, you might really hate this movie. You're going to have a bad time. No, I think that's an interesting way to put it because it is like a a series of these kind of, especially in the extended cut, that that play out like scenes from a play. You're seeing a lot of character and a lot of back and forth, and there's a little bit of subterfuge, but you're seeing past the subterfuge, and you're seeing the reaction to that. And there's little reveals, but they're sort of – it's almost like the reveals are sort of buried between the scenes. You have to kind of knit it together to realize what you just found out that's affecting what you're doing now. That's definitely where second and third viewing, the story becomes almost linear. Um, I've only seen the the extended cut too, Mike, and I had the experience of getting ready for this episode thinking, well, I don't think I'm going to watch both versions. Maybe I'll watch whatever the version is I didn't watch last time, you know, and then I read about it and they said the extended cut has stuff added in that makes the story make more sense. And I was like, oh, I don't guess I saw that one <laughs> because I remember having to watch it a couple times and do a little due diligence, a little reading and interviews and stuff before I was like, oh, I think I know what this full story of this was. But then I was watching the extended one and I realized, no, this is the one that I saw. I think it was still just that kind of movie. And again, I hate to keep mentioning that it's like a book just because Carmen McCarthy wrote the the screenplay. But I do think it has that element, all that stuff you're talking about, those conversation scenes. That's like what you kind of relish when you're reading a good novel is like a good long dialogue scene that has a lot of detail and a lot of, you know, anecdote and nested narrative and all that stuff. So I, I do feel like that's an, that's one of those kind of novelistic things that this movie has is it does give you like a lot of character detail 
that even in a two and a half hour movie, you don't always expect to get. You definitely expect it maybe on a television show or something like that. But this kind of decompressed style of dialogue for a story that when you get to the end, a lot still happens, even though it happens in this weird, like you said, Mike, it's off camera almost. Uh, it's almost like a movie that avoids the scenes that you typically would see driving this kind of narrative. And it's, it's completely lacking in a protagonist who's like, you know, in command of the story. So I think that's another thing that might throw off audiences who want to have fun with this kind of thing. Outside of when I saw it at the cinema, I've, I've only ever really watched the the extended cut, the director's cut. I think I prefer to watch Ridley Scott films in 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 that kind of um, in that kind of vein. And and with this as well, um, it, even the extended cut, it took a good two or three times to to kind of slowly piece it together. A friend of mine compared it to something like Night Moves, where you have to watch it two, three, four times to to kind of get the gist. And and it is quite a simple story underneath, but they're kind of adding all these layers on it continuously, continuously, because especially with all the foreshadowing, you're looking for that coming as well while they're trying to understand the plot. It's like, right, where's the next big, next big set piece coming from? Chekhov's Belito. <laughs> Very nicely put. And it was it was this kind of like subplot with the Green Hornet that I couldn't quite get my head around for the first few times. Now, after seeing it, um, I think I watched it last year and, and, and re-watching it for, the, for, for this podcast is, I get it. I, I completely understand it now. And you're talking about having no protagonist. I think Malkino is probably the closest we're going to get as someone who kind of knits it all together in the end because she's like the, the real kind of, you know, the, the dastardly person of the story. Yeah, it's definitely her movie when you get to the end, you know, like, it's like, who's victorious? Who even had a shot at being victorious? She was the only one who was maybe ruthless enough that we knew. I know that they openly quote from Body Heat in the movie. And so it does remind me of Body Heat. It does remind me of Double Indemnity. But with that, Walter Neff, he really wants the Phyllis character. And he does a really stupid thing. And that sets him on this path of destruction. It's interesting in this one, you know, the counselor I'm not sure what his motivation is. There's talk of him paying for his wedding with Laura, but I don't think that he's hurting for money. I don't think that he's making this drug deal just for the money. It's almost like he's making this drug deal for the glamour of it and to be in that next echelon. He's doing well. He's got a really great place. He's got a really fantastic girlfriend. He can afford that diamond. No problem. But what's he want to do? He basically, he just makes one mistake and it's not like he's plotting, plotting, plotting to do this. He basically talks with the Javier Bardem character and then, yeah, okay, well, let's do it. I mean, that you just kind of, again, to your point, you're getting these things almost off screen. You're getting just like little, or you, when you do get it, it's just basically, here's a phone call. Okay. Yeah, I'm in. All right. Great. What's that mean? You know, it, I guess that means that that stuff that we see in that other narrative, that that now is going to affect what's happening to the main narrative of the counselor. I think if this was made by anybody else, um, the character of the counselor may have been given a bit more of a backstory because he's such a kind of naive person. I think that, I think naive is the perfect word for him. He's incredibly naive throughout. And you're talking about what does he need the money for? And I was kind of sat thinking about this last night after I, after I watched it. And because he's that kind of court appointed 
counselor, lawyer, solicitor, whatever the terminology is, he's clearly going to have met some bad people along the way. And there's that kind of interaction where they're at the polo match with, with the, um, the Southern gentleman who, um, who kind of comes into play and he starts dropping these kind of subliminals to Laura and it just kind of gets your brain thinking. He's like, he must have made some real enemies and, and maybe the money's coming from like, right. He wants to get out of the actual, um, law business. For, for certain because he wants to settle down with Laura and it is true love. Uh, there's no two ways about saying that, but he must have made some enemies along the way. And this is just his way of saying, right, I need to get out. I'll have the nightclubs, but my day to day job is, is, is going to be done. And he's, it's a, it's a really interesting character. And I can't imagine anybody other than Fassbender playing it quite well, even though he does kind of come along with this, uh, box office poison <laughs> moniker that he seems to have had over the few years, which I think is incredibly unfair. Well, you know, I think it's interesting too that this is the movie they made together after Prometheus. Because if there's anything, I mean, I, I think there's a lot to admire about Prometheus, but I also think it's got so many problems that there's a big conversation to have. But one of the things that worked for me 100% was the character of, of David, the, the android. I thought that Michael Fassbender seemed to know he was bringing something special to this idea, this character, this like, you know, it's just a new spin on this kind of Android intelligence that we've seen before. And so I think, I don't know, I feel like that's Ridley Scott recognizing I can use that guy's kind of, I don't know, Michael Fassbender always has this kind of almost alien. There's a, there's something he's naive and kind of dead eyed at the same time with, with so many of these roles that he gets. And I think that the counselor being, I mean, if you look at his face, he seems so, he sort of seems out of his league and confused in almost every scene, at least at some point in every scene. But then he kind of, he gets glib when he should be getting more serious almost every time, you know, like when he's talking to Brad Pitt's character, which I'm sure we'll get more into a little bit later, but like that, that he's like, he, he knows someone's telling him some, some like stuff that he should take seriously, but his response is to kind of turn it around and be like, well, what about that? And, and so you kind of, we feel it coming. Like this guy has been, everybody he's talked to has basically said to him, are you sure you're sure? But are you sure you're sure you're sure? You know, like this is the whole first chunk of the movie. And I do think keeping it nebulous, what he's trying to do and why he's trying to do it, it adds to the air of of this movie that there is a little bit of a mystery surrounding even him. But he he does seem like, I don't know, like he's in some ways, he's one of the shallower characters in the movie because he didn't seem like he really thought through the actions, even with people warning him, he didn't seem like he really thought through, oh, that this could this could affect your life. Like you said, Mike, that it could come back around and suddenly now your your beloved is dealing with this when she, you know, almost is a comically innocent character, Penelope Cruz's uh, character is. So I do think that that sort of corruption of everything in this guy's life, uh, Michael, Michael Fassbender is a great actor to play that that sort of. Like you expect him to have more game, you know, and then you discover that he doesn't halfway into the movie. It's kind of a twist almost that he's got no game whatsoever. We talk about like the, the comical, um, tragedy surrounding Laura because that's telegraphed since from the first scene, but even, even with the counselor as well, um, you know, where he works, he's working on the Mexico American border dealing with people who clearly work for the cartel. Again, albeit court appointed, it's obviously a very, very bad character trait in him. Why wouldn't he have heard of any of these stories before? I, again, whether it's just that blissful naivety or willful, willful ignorance. Um, he's dealing with someone who has clearly got ties to the cartel in Ruth and, and her son as well. It, it's, it's just bizarre, really, that, that he would be, like you say, this, this naive about everything. Um, but I think that's, that's all part of his, his kind of like flawed character character um that that kind of like i'm not going to say a tragic hero but that kind of like tragic wanderer on this journey that is just only going to end in you know badly for him that the, there's no like light at the end of the tunnel he doesn't 
tell people that much. It seems like everybody's telling him things. You know, Rainer is telling him stories, telling him about how things work. Westray, the Brad Pitt character, same thing. Rainer's got the whole thing about the Bolito that you're talking about, but then he's also telling the stories about the Portuguese guy who they're teaching how to say, I want to eat your pussy. He's telling him the story about the car that Cameron Diaz fucks. Westray's got all of his stories that he's telling to him. The diamond merchant has his stories that he's telling to him. It is almost like the counselor is blank and everybody is projecting onto him all of these stories. And he just, yeah, he's kind of like, oh, okay. I don't really know what to do. I, I found one interesting thing in the making of when uh, Javier Bardem was talking about how one of the things he goes back to a lot in his dialogue is, I don't know. And just this kind of buffer of like, well, I don't know. You can do this. You can do that. I don't know. And I don't know what she knows. I don't want to know. You know what all that stuff is? Uh, mostly, yeah. Anything I don't know, I can ask her, which worries me even more. He doesn't know, and he doesn't want to lead the counselor astray. I think he knows that he's a little lost lamb, but at the end of the day, the counselor makes his own decision, and he'll abide by it. Well, I I thought it was interesting that he said that I don't know thing, too, because he does say it at a few points, you know, but it's definitely in his character. And I think it's like a significant moment in the movie when... Malkina. Um, she's, when she's talking to Javier Bardem and she's saying to him, she basically is asking him, like, what are you going to do about all this? This is kind of midway into the movie, right before he gets killed. And he basically kind of says, I don't know, in some, and not in so many words to her. And it's like, you see on her face the sort of like, I got to start planning my life beyond this guy at this moment. She, she doesn't not care about him, but she's, when she sees that he's marked, she's like, all right, I've got my own plan. And I think that's another thing that kind of happens off screen is we, you know, her machinations make more sense at the very end. But you realize that there was a point where she recognized what was going on, even if she wasn't driving the story. She wasn't. You see what her her victory was is in the Westray storyline of like getting his his assets and everything. But the Westray character, I like the way that he represents a kind of guy who like re- he's the guy who really knew what was going on and and stayed in anyway. And I don't know, every one of them kind of represents a different angle on it. But they all, when they're talking to the counselor, they they have a different way of saying to him what you said. And I think mentioning, mentioning the diamond merchant is another thing. He has a totally like he totally feels like I'm just bouncing off this guy, like I'm trying to tell him something and he's not picking up the lines of what I want him to pick up at all. He just, I mean, he doesn't quite go, eh, but he's almost does, you know, of just like, I've lost patience trying to explain to this person what they're getting involved in or that they're, that, you know, that they're chasing something wrong, but it's like throughout the movie. So yeah, I do think it's interesting. It's kind of a noir story thing, isn't it? To have like the lead guy gets told what's going on through most of the movie, but usually they have some angle on it that then they play. But this guy, like, you know, the last 20 minutes of the movie are, he's got no one to turn to. And Westray even says to him, if, uh, if a friend is somebody who'll die for you, then you've got no friends. He's clearly very, very well educated and, and a very, very smart person. But I think that feeds into a complete lack of life experience as well. Um, you, you go back to, um, we're, we're, we're talking about him not really knowing what's going on at the best of times. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And maybe his, his, you know, employer be in the state at the time. And you talked about again, just going back to the guy who, who accosts him when he's having dinner with Laura and he says he throws him under the bus when he doesn't get his own way. And maybe that was always his get out clause where he's like, right, I can just fob this off on somebody else, go to the next client. And it doesn't really matter because he's not going to come back and touch me. But now he's kind of in the real world. He, he thinks he can solve all problems by his charm, his looks, his, his kind of like, Almost, I'm not going to say smarminess, but he he kind of does have that. I can talk and my way out of any situation, and and I think one of the 
the standout lines for me in the film is is when he's talking to um uh, about the coincidences and they said <laughs> it's where it's the chat with Westray. It's like well they've heard of them but they don't believe in them and it, and this is the kind of thing you've got to get across to to people is that yeah you can sit in a room with these people and argue your case but sometimes x and y don't necessarily go together in the way that you think they do this seems like it's been planned from the start because it's too much of a coincidence and there's no way you're going to get across to that somebody who wants to cut your head off <laughs> where does westray fit into the story because i know he and malkina have had a history and there's even possibly a an implied thing that he might be the father of her child like there's uh she's pregnant at the end of the movie I don't know, uh, but he seems to kind of show up out of nowhere for me. And I've watched the film a couple times now, and I'm still trying to figure out where does he come from. That's a really good point. And and you're thinking of him as a – he talks about him being a middleman, and, and Ryan obviously knows him as well. But there was the, the – and, and it makes complete sense now you say that, that there's the bit where they're talking about Westray and, and the counselor are talking. He's like, oh, we sometimes share women. And he actually brings up Malkina, and you can see – he gets a little shirty and he gets, you know, caught on the back foot about that. And, and in the actual screenplay as well, you're talking about the, the pregnancy and that, that makes complete perfect sense that maybe because the whole thing with the, the robbing of his, his case and accounts doesn't necessarily tie into the deal as much. It seems like a personal vendetta that Malkina may have against him for his future and uh, future and, and the child as well. So I, I never actually thought of, of putting two and two together in that respect. I mean, it definitely seemed like his job as kind of the broker who can connect these people would possibly lead to an affair with Malkina and, you know, an association with Reiner where he knows the inner workings and there doesn't have to be like a lot of story there. But I think that's, again, that kind of fits into the way these characters are drawn and it's kind of mysterious. There is so much left unexplained, but I, I like the way you pinpoint that moment where that's one of the few moments where he kind of gets ruffled is when the counselor says something about, do you, you know, what do you think of Malkina or did you ever have any involvement with her? And he's like, well, that's not a, you know, a very polite question. He has some way of reacting to that that sort of fits in with his pattern, but, but you can tell that he like doesn't want to give that much information and maybe even that it's a sore spot. But he's a guy who seems like he's just one step ahead of what happens to him throughout his whole and his, and he, and he kind of knows it. So I, you really wonder, you really wonder, yeah, like if the story had focused on him, what would you have been hoping for? Does he really have the wife and the, the, the escape that he wants to go on? Or has he already accepted that that's really just a, like a lie that he tells himself? Well, he said he's one step ahead, but I don't think he's even one step ahead because the first time we meet him, he's got that shiner. Right, right. Like, okay. Right. Yeah. You obviously fucked up and you think that you're smarter than you are, but you got tagged. And who knows the next time you're going to get tagged because you might not be nearly as clever as you think. That's a great catch, Mike, because it really points something out that informs your view of the character from that point on, which is that he doesn't have his shit too much together. Dressed in his Hank Williams nudie suit, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I is love a really that. Nice a cowboy dandy. <laughs> but I think Malkina and Westray, again, are probably the two realist characters in the films. The only people who are really willing to say, point out the situation for what it is. Reiner is, is kind of a bit of a tragic bozo. I think he means well. And obviously he's always been protected to some degree. Um, and he's clearly terrified of Malkina as well. But with that character as well, she's a product of the world she entered. Um, she talks about her parents being thrown out of a helicopter over the Atlantic. Um, and she's clearly been through some kind of levels of systematic abuse, um, in, in some regards to kind of for her to have this, this kind of like grim outlook on the world. 
and there's that quote again at the start where she talks about not missing things. It's, it's almost like a perfect metaphor for her, for her dealings. She knows people are die. She knows people are going to lose money. People are going to look for revenge, but she always has her kind of like best interests at heart from day one, no matter who gets burnt along the way. What do you think of that scene of her going to the priest and confessing? I know that kind of comes from her conversation with Laura, where they're talking about confession, but just it's such an interesting thing. The, the, the stuff that sticks out for me a lot with this movie are the ones where the scenes where it just doesn't seem to fit into the narrative and trying to think of how does this fit into the narrative? She clearly says, um, and this is during the, the kind of like poolside lunch um, with Laura, she's seen everything. She has experienced everything but religion and having that connection to a higher power that may be able to forgive her for her sins. And she's clearly going to get off telling the priest about this as well, but she's clearly looking for something that she's, she's never had in her life before and, and maybe wants to just feel something at the end of the day by getting this off her chest. What the outcome will be, no one really knows, but she obviously screws it up because the priest, you know, kind of sees through her game. Yeah, I kind of think of it in the same way, sort of as the scene with the guy buying the dog food, where he basically tells a shaggy dog kind of street joke style of story, you know, that's got a punchline and everything. There's something comic and self-contained about, okay, if we've accepted the valence of this movie and we've, we, we know who Malkina is, you know, her going to confessional is just kind of like a an idea that you would have, you would have it on your list of possible scenes where you'd be like, well, I've got to do that, right? I've got to have her kind of like use this, this power that she has even against a priest in his milieu. Like she's going to go sample. It's like a Tony Soprano plot line almost like, Oh, he's going to go try religion for one scene and like be like, what the fuck's up with this and leave? You know, I think there was something kind of meant to be funny about that. But I also think Cormac McCarthy being a writer, I mean, that observation about, if people come to you, specifically women, but you could say this is true of all people, coming to you confessing all the bad things they've done, doesn't that distort your view of humanity? And so it's sort of like there's something there that is like a, a, a philosophical idea that is, you know, another one to put on the pile that comes across in this movie. So I think it's kind of a loaded scene, but it does feel like when it's over, it's a little vignette that if you were trying to trim this movie down to like a tight hundred minutes or something, you would look at a scene like that and go, eh, do we need it? But I think that's what we get in this movie are all these little oddball interchanges, you know, and the fact that her conversation with a, a priest who's only in one scene is maybe as significant as conversations she has with major characters, you know, just the, the way that she kind of dominates him in that weird way is sort of uh, both funny and, and it seems like to me, it says a lot about her character. And I do think the idea that she's like, oh, what about religion? Eh, no. And it's, you know, it is a bit of a dead end, maybe narratively. And do you know what I mean about comparing it to the scene with the dog food where you just spend a little time and at the end of the scene, it's essentially a joke. It's essentially like a sketch almost that you got to see. And you could look for themes, but it's really just there, I think, to amuse you. They're like acting exercises. Like, okay, now, now we put Melkina with a priest. Mm -hmm. All right, go just on the, the the watch after last night as well and, and something got me thinking because um, again I just sat in silence for a good 10-15 minutes after watching the film and just kind of stewing things over and, and really feel like I've, I've got a handle on the film now and I was just thinking in terms of think of what Tarantino did with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the novelization given the kind of gravitas and background to the characters like Cliff and Rick which you didn't necessarily have in the film it doesn't feel forced at all and I would really love a novel of the counselor where he can kind of give a bit more credence to these characters so we don't have to have that ABC backstory but these like kind of little stories of how they came to be like obviously in 
once upon a time in Hollywood, you have all the dogfighting and the, and the pimping stuff. And something like that for the counselor, I think, would, would really elevate it uh, that, that bit more for me. Um, just knowing that tiny bit more, um, I don't need to, but knowing it would be like a really cool thing to, to have. I, you were talking about scenes to cut. I'm amazed that the car fucking made it through, which then makes me think this has to be very significant. After watching Tatane last night, I think maybe she's pregnant with the car's baby. But that scene, when that finally came up, I was like, okay, this is not integral to the linear plot at all because it's a flashback. And it is Rainer telling this story about he is freaked out by what Malkina did. And I really appreciate that, that he is kind of freaked out and he is not turned on at all the way that he describes the way that her vagina is against the the window like a catfish sucking the dirt off of a, a fish tank. Wow, what a description and just what a way to put a scene together. It could be seen as well as, as another kind of warning. Um, we, we get the, the warnings going throughout as well, but maybe that's Reiner's way of, of kind of telling the counselors, like, just be aware, like, this, this chick's capable of anything. And he kind of gets to that point towards the end as well. And I think this is in the extended, not the, um, not the theatrical cut. And there's a bit more of a, a, a dialogue on this scene afterwards. Um, and it's like, why would you tell me that? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, and it's like, yeah, why would you tell somebody this intimate a thing? Because yeah, this woman is capable of absolutely anything, including cars and windshields and <laughs> doing the deed, shall we say. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of other screenwriters who excel at the sort of two morally ambiguous people in a scene having a dialogue about something like this. And I'm, I'm thinking of like Coen Brothers movies and I'm thinking of, of Tarantino where you can have like this bit of bodiness and this bit of like, I mean, I, I had, I had to kind of work to decide whether like is the movie commenting on a weird kind of male, like a misogyny that they have a fear they have of, of female power and illustrating it in this really like, biological way <laughs> that is like he's intimidated literally intimidated by her vagina you know what i mean like there's actually so, that's actually happening but the comparisons are not flattering it's certainly presented in a way that you could think was sort of hot but it feels very you'd have to be sort of fetishy <laughs> you'd have to have that side of your personality turned on to find this to be like an erotic scene but i do think again that what really plays for me is javier bardem i think there's a comic tone to his reaction to it and the way he's shaken and the look on his face when he's telling the counselor about it 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 just it adds to this when he's like i don't know why i told you that i mean it's almost like a scene from curb your enthusiasm or something like that where two where two people are like just riffing and, and so i i feel like there is something kind of it, it, just like the the sex scenes and the love scenes, you might call them between Penelope Cruz and the counselor, that you kind of cringe at something at the same time as thinking like, well, this is kind of kind of uh, annoying and cringy, but it also feels a little bit maybe maybe I feel that way because it's a little bit more like real life because it is sort of awkward and it doesn't sound good when you say like sexy things to, you know, to in the middle of a moment, like it, someone has to really be into you to think that it's sexy. And like the way, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of stuff in here that, that feels like it's trying to be frank and real, even about these very heightened things, because certainly what, what Malkina does to the car is not something we've seen in a bunch of stories, but the idea of a guy being kind of freaked out by something that happened and telling his friend, like, Oh, you won't believe what she did. Like that is at least in the vein of a relatable thing. And I think we've seen lots of comic scenarios where it's two friends talking about something that went awry. That's sort of in that sexual realm. I just think this is, you know, again, I think it's an inventive 
I mean, it's, it's strange to say about this very bizarre scene, but I think maybe that's why it's in the movie is because it is like a conversation piece. It's a couple, it, there's a couple other scenes like it. What happens to Brad Pitt is, is another one, but like, this is just one of those scenes that I remember before I saw one frame of this movie. I had, I had seen several critics talking about this. Sometimes you just know you've got to put something like that in, but I, I agree that it is strange to think of like seeing this. You say you saw it in a theater. I can't imagine what the theater was like in that moment. I can't quite remember the reaction to it, to be honest, but you're right. It, it was, it was telegraphed in all the reviews before I got to see it. I think I saw it after the opening weekend as well. And, and you, again, you write about the sex scenes as well is that if you're in a completely intimate moment with somebody and you're in that headspace, then anything goes. You could say anything, no matter how embarrassing it, it, it could be. Um, that's what McCarthy's kind of going for in that respect because it, it just doesn't want to be two people who, enter the scene, do the business and, and they're like cigarette smoking sweat. He's actually trying to do something. And when you do talk about sex and you do talk about that, that kind of dialogue as well, it's embarrassing and it is a bit embarrassing to watch. But again, on subsequent rewatches, it makes a lot of sense because it's, it's just, and I think more in the character of Laura as well, who's clearly, I'm not going to say a prude, but he's trying to unlock something in her and, and it eventually comes out. And even when, Things are starting to go a bit pear shaped. There is the phone scene as well, where they're talking to each other. It's like, you know, they really miss you and, and the like. And she's trying to push for that. She wants to get a bit more of, of that, what happened in the bed on the phone as well. And he, he doesn't seem to be going for it at that exact moment, but he definitely kind of opened something in her as well. So yeah, I, I don't think, like I say, as embarrassing as it can be, is it, it's, it's warranted, warranted scene to have. So she's talking about her panties. So I said, you mean the panties your mother laid out for you? What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> just popped out. Well, how did she react? She flipped out. Just left. Well, that's not offensive. Well, she's even trying to flirt with uh, Melkina at one point. I mean, they're, they've got that moment in the spa, but then talking about the phone, because a lot of times uh, Laura is removed from this narrative and she's just talking to people on the phone. So she's talking to the counselor on the phone, like you said, trying to get that, you know, phone sex type of thing going. And then she's flirting with uh, Melkina via phone conversation as well. It's like, oh, okay. And that to me was almost like, oh, well, maybe if she and Melkina hook up, she'll be safe because Melkina is evil incarnate. But nope, nope, definitely not. And I have to say, I was so dumb the first time that I watched this movie that I didn't realize, you know, we talk about, you know, you mentioned the Bolito and then you're going to see the Bolito. You mentioned the snuff films and then I don't realize when he gets a DVDR that says hola at the end of it, what's on that DVDR. I was like, okay, the only time I've ever seen anybody react like that is when somebody gave me David the Rock Nelson shorts on a DVDR. I was like horrified, but it took me so long to figure out that that was a snuff film on the DVDR. Those two payoffs, I should say, are back to back too. You get the, you get the Bolito scene and then at least in the extended edition and then like the next scene or the next, at least, you know, very, very, very much after that in the story, you get the payoff to the snuff film suggestion earlier. So it really is like both of those things land within a couple of minutes of each other in the story. And the same with, with heads getting lobbed off as well. Where did that come from? And there's the, the little bit from Rhino is like, well, if you put 
nine Mexicans and an Arab in a room with a hundred dollars who's coming out with the thousand kind of thing. And it's, it's, and, and that feeds into, and I think I get a much more of an understanding on the, the, the jeweler scene now as well. Cause he talks about the, you know, that there is no culture after the Semitic culture, which he says is, a, is, you know, is a very bold thing to say. But I think he's looking at it the case that we're looking through a window now into this kind of culture of excess and greed and violence for pleasure. Whereas the jeweler's thinking, well, violence from his culture was pretty much based on things like holy wars where you you know you're fighting for your religion whereas now it's it's that kind of pain for pleasure um other people's misfortune for pleasure as well so there's that kind of like a little undertone that's going on although it's only explored in and like say people getting the heads chopped off or, or people getting ferried around in uh, in oil tankers just for people's fun that's what we're looking at now and that is what the you know the culture of the west is now is is yeah just like kind of extreme violence there's like an existential ugliness and bleakness to that too. The idea that you could be carted back and forth eternally, you know, in a barrel and that it's like a cosmic joke. I mean, there's some, again, that scene is another one of those that is sort of a little vignette that you could totally see that it's there just because of that very disquieting idea that it injects into this story. Just like what a, what a horrible fate. And it says a lot for the film as well. And you, we, we talk about this being almost like a BT movie with like a stellar A star cast and then pops in. John Leguizamo and, um, and, uh, Dean Norris. Uh, yeah. Dean Nor- Norris. Sorry. Yeah. And they can just come in and have their bit. And, and, but yeah, where did that come from? And it's like, right onto the next bit. And it's, I, I, I think that's, you know, just, just gives that film a bit more, a bit more gravitas with the amount of people who are just willing to sign up for a, a two, three minute scene. If that, at best. Well, Ruben Blood is at the, as the jefe. I mean, that scene is just amazing. And he's just like, yeah, you're fucked. And he just like doesn't come out and say that, but he says it a hundred times to the counselor. Just, yeah, you're done. You're done. And I just love how matter of fact he is about things. And just that conversation is one of those moments where I'm like, wow, this is all taking place on the phone in the film, but it really feels again like two actors just going at it. And it kind of makes me appreciate the movie overall. Yeah, that, yeah, that scene is such a, uh, I keep using the word payoff, but that's, a, that's a big payoff for the movie because this is sort of like the closest we get to kind of a, the voice of a deity or something. This person feels like they're the, they're the most connected, highest up person we've seen. We, we may have thought early on that Reiner was connected, but he's, like you said, James, very much a clown figure sort of by the time the movie's over. But this guy, uh, Ruben Blattis' character is like, he's got this one line that is just so chilling to me. He says, life is not going to take you back. And it's, it's almost like on the phone call, the fact that he's saying it in such a kind of monotonous, dull tone that he's not actually losing patience with him. Whereas somebody, somebody would grab him by and shake him and slap him around and say, do you not understand? And he's like, you do not understand the gravity of your situation. He just delivers it like that. And again, almost toying with him in a way where would you take her place if you could? And he's like, yes, yes. Well, no, it's not possible. So it's almost, again, he's just getting his kicks out of, of delivering the most brutal news he could possibly have. That scene for me is, is the, the MVP. It's, it's just a, a really, and again, Fassbender's acting in this scene and the delivery of the hola is it, just, it's, it's some of the best acting he's, he's ever done for me. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. I did read a really nice piece where the author was talking about how bolito is so close to the word boleto. So the Spanish word for ticket and the way that Rayner describes what the bolito is doing and what we end up seeing it doing the whole idea of like, it is such a showcase and it's basically giving people, it's giving the audience what they want. 
to the point where the people on the street are the audience and they're just watching this guy die and then they get sprayed with blood and then they go home, you know, then they are, then the, the body is dead and off they go. It's like you pay your ticket, you get what you get. That feels so much to me like a great metaphor for this film, especially when it comes to like, is this what you want? Is this the entertainment that you want? You want to see Brad Pitt get his fingers sliced off and see all that gore just spraying everywhere. What a amazing, powerful scene it is. Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? The second he leaves the Bank of America, and that's just outside Liverpool Street in London, um, which I've been past quite a bit recently as well. And it's, I'm not getting flashbacks, but like that's where that happened in that film. But you, you know, it's going to happen at that moment. Like even in the cinema, the first time watch, you're like, right, shit's going down now. This is where it happens. And there's a couple of times as well, and um, my friend described it as the Brad Pitt stoner laugh, where he just laughs at the ridiculous of the situation. He's like, he just has. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of like laugh that, that the Brad Pitt's known for and he does it a couple of times in the film as well and the, the first time when they meet up at the hotel um, at the the hotel poolside where that's like right laying it out for him um, as truthfully as he can and he's like is there anything he can do and he just gives that laugh and he gives it one more time just before his fingers go and it, and it goes through and he's just like fuck you fuck you and um, it, it just makes me it, it, the, the one thing as well is Malkina doesn't really want anything to do with it she just kind of like right let's go and, and just kind of lets him have his time but yeah it's uh it's one of the best payoffs in, in any film from 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 that kind of uh, era it's, it's, it's just wonderful I guess it's kind of a, a a thing you get to do if you're Brad Pitt, but that you get to sort of be laughing when you're dying like that, you know, but it's something that really lends that character that kind of, I don't know, that almost larger than life quality that we've been talking about where he's he's got this vaguely cowboy thing going on, but he seems to... By the time he's dead, he's accepted this is how he's going to go. And he's got kind of a – even the way he kind of sits down and starts messing with it, he's got this kind of like, well, shit, what's what's going on now, you know, kind of thing. And I think Brad Pitt's – both the way they staged that scene, shot that scene, the, the in the extended version, I'm to understand it's considerably gorier than the one that was in the theatrical. So I don't know how 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 much is in the theatrical. But the way it plays in the extended version, it is like – for all the gruesomeness of it, it is sort of like, you know, what you were saying, it's like the philosophical climax of the movie, because you can't help but compare yourself to the people standing around being helpless to do anything watching it happen, because not only even if you're not thinking about that as a viewer of a movie, you would be thinking about this bolito, like, what would you do if you got this put on you? What would you do if you saw someone get it put on? The, the idea that there's nothing you can do in the time it takes for this thing to kill you is is part of what makes it chilling in both the kind of thriller, schlocky, violent death in a movie like this kind of way. But it also is something that you know, it is an existential state of like, okay, the, it's tightening that your death is there already. It's around your neck. It's just tightening, 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 tightening. And one day it's going to, you're going to be done. That's what we are all dealing with <laughs> all day, every day. There's a bolito around this entire film. I kind of think that the counselor sometimes deserves his fate because not once, but twice, at least in the film, he corrects people's grammar and pronunciation. I have made the call. If it is all right, it is all right. Don't put me in the center. Okay? In the middle. In the middle. Yeah. And then I think he corrects Hefe's pronunciation of hiatus. You have to acknowledge the reality of the world that you're in. There is not some other world. This is not a hiatus. 
You are talking life and death here. You're talking about your your beloved. You're talking about Laura here, and you have to correct this guy's pronunciation of hiatus. He's just like Larry David in that moment. He's like, you know what bothers me though is that you said hiatus wrong. But and I love the way Hefe kind of plays that moment out. He's like, oh really? How is it spelled? And he spells it for him. And then he's like, oh thank you, thank you, counselor. You know, he's so like. There's a bit with Ruth as well uh, where he's talking about the hat, but um, he said, oh, the, the, she's like, I owe you one. And he said, we want a blowjob. He's like, you'd still owe me three eighty. It's, it's absolutely brilliantly put. You can just see her face go straight away. So again, yeah, you, the, there's, there's the the smarminess that that kind of comes with him. It's like, dude, like you've have you not learned anything <laughs> during this like horrific time? But oh god, what a plonker! Just trying to think of other movies that have had that kind of protagonist, where at the end the sort the jokes on them, you know. Um, from everything I've heard, that new uh, Guillermo del Toro movie, Nightmare Alley, has a has a sort of lead who gets his comeuppance. I love that kind of story. It it feels very tr- again. It just feels like you're you're really telling the story that you're telling when you own up to the idea that sometimes when you put a character, in, they they get painted into a corner. Sometimes the only logical thing to do is watch them face the comeuppance not the thing we're used to which is rescuing somebody and you do feel like this movie's going to at least like spare uh, Penelope Cruz's character and even after she gets abducted there's this brief moment where you're, you're you've seen so many times that person tied to a chair and spitting in the face of the kidnappers and stuff but it's like no in this world in this in this this world of the cartel running things when you dig it when you get disappeared you're just that's it and it's it's so grim but you just are not used to I mean that is a, a really hard to watch scene it's incredibly brutal not just because we love penelope cruz but this character's never done anything wrong to anybody um except for some super cringy uh you know pillow talk but you know haven't we all her fate is sealed in in airport car parks she meets the counselor in an airport car park and then meets the demise in an airport car park as well and and the first time i have i, I saw the again in the theater um the dump truck and now that is that is extended in the extended version, so I think you only see a flash of it. But in the extended, you see the full red dress fall down. It it gets me every time. It is it's just it's as grim as it gets for a mainstream film because you don't need to see it play out. You can just imagine it because you've been given all the markers throughout the film, whether it being you know the the the, the snuff film for pleasure or, or when Westray describes you know it's just bored people with money what they're going to do and and. Oh God, yeah, you know what's on the disc, and it, it it just plays around in your head, and I think it's a very good kind of like little psychological subplot that just kind of keeps ticking over in the back of your mind, and then yeah, it's it's horrific, it's horrible. The first time I watched this film, because I know in real life Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz are married, I kept thinking that they were married in this film, and I was like, oh well, no wonder they have goofy pillow talk between Penelope Cruz and uh, Michael Fassbender. They are having an affair, and so they're fucking like bunnies. I didn't realize that they're supposed to be a real couple in this. I was like, oh yeah, no, they're having an affair, and maybe Cameron Diaz and Javier Bardem are having an affair, and maybe they'll swap at some point. No, that's not the case. I was mixing up real life with movie life too much in this. I do think it's sometimes hard to disentangle, but that's like part of that star power that these people have, that you do kind of come into it going, oh, again, it, it, I guess if you were thinking of it as sort of them parlaying their personas into a movie like this, that's another thing that kind of sets you up to expect something less 
less depressing <laughs> than than this movie is. And Ryan is such a, like you say, he's just such a hapless fool. And he's clearly made his inroads into his business that he's doing. And he's he's clearly, again, got protection to a certain level. And he's like, maybe next to Laura, one of the tragic characters of this, because he doesn't necessarily deserve what happens to him. And obviously everything's just, you know, part of circumstance of, of, of what ends up happening. And yeah, I, I felt really horrible for him during his death scene because, you know, he was, he was just a guy that, that sent an olive branch to somebody and it all got, ends up going pear-shaped. But yeah, and then he gets robbed of his loafers. <laughs> and he gets shot in the ass. Yeah, shot in the ass. <laughs> he gets shot in the ass. Then the head. Then the kids come out of the bushes and like take his his valuables, you know. And then the the cheetahs get out of the the SUV and scare off the kids. I half expected the cheetahs to start eating him before that scene was over. But you know, I guess that was the fo- that was the one indignity that he was spared was he didn't get eaten by the the cheetahs. It looked like they actually like him. <laughs> they look sad. <laughs> I was kind of waiting for those cheetahs to go on a kill crazy rampage through the city or something. <laughs> I kept thinking one of them was going to jump in from out of shot at some point on somebody, you know, but maybe that's just too, that's just too slapstick or something like that. And yeah, at the end of the day, Malkina's the only one and rewatching it again uh, yesterday. I was like, Oh wow. She is doing stuff way earlier than I thought. There are some conversations she has where I'm like, Oh, okay. She's really on the ball and, and making sure that she's got that escape plan. And then at the end, talking with the guy from ER, I'm just like, okay, wow. She's very dedicated to this. And yeah, when she ends up stealing all of Westray's stuff, it's so clever. And I, I do like that, uh, the line that she has to the woman who is in cahoots with her about how, you know what I like about Americans? No, what? You can depend on them. She's definitely not playing an American, and she's playing somebody very, very vicious. Well, even with the the, the Natalie Dormer character who comes in as, as the kind of like, you know, femme fatale for, for Westray, is that when she's given the money, and she's like, oh, well, he's going to be poor now, isn't he? And, oh, is it going to be worse? And it's almost as if, again, a bit of naivety on her part. It's like, well, you know who you're in bed with here. You know that the money is going to be dirty. Same with the counselor in some respects. It's like, what did you think was going to happen? And the whole end scene with, with Malkina as well. And it's, again, someone has been pulled into her orbit who is now in danger because of her actions. And she's just saying, look, get shit together because I'm going to Tokyo now. Um, or was it Hong Kong? Sorry. That, that she says she's going to, she's got her affairs in order to agree. You go and do yours. This is effectively like a final goodbye. doesn't matter who she hurts along the way, as long as like number one is, is looked after. Yeah. I do think that is an interesting, that little final twist of the knife that she does. He says to her, I think you've just told me more than I want to know. And she's like, Oh, well too bad. Now, you know, and like, it's just like, it's a little bit like a, a sickness that spreads, you know, f- through all the characters in this. And it's like greed for a lot of people, but for the more innocent characters, it's really just kind of being in the wrong place at the wrong time or being friends with the wrong person or being in love with the wrong person. It, I, and I think maybe what the Natalie Dormer character does provide is, yes, yeah, it's, it's another moral shading. Here's a person who isn't above getting involved in a caper. And again, that you might picture her in a more charming movie about people who run scams on each other or whatever but in this movie it's like no no no. you're not just running a little harmless scam you're, you're giving me information that now that question i love the way it was phrased she was like well you have to i don't know what use it's going to be to to you without the laptop and she's like oh yeah i know I've, i'm like i've already got that she's already got that plan in her head you know 
And yes, you're right. It is very clever to see what that character has set up. I, I don't know if I didn't, I think I've gotten to accept it more, but the first couple of times I saw this movie, I didn't quite, I wasn't sure if I bought Cameron Diaz's sort of the person behind this narrative. But I think honestly, watching it with the commentary and with subtitles on and not hearing her accent <laughs> quite as much, I was able to latch on to more the, just the optics of that character. And I do think it's like, okay, it, the performance held up visually, maybe more than it did. I, I guess my first impression was that she was a little wooden in this character, but you know, there's a lot to say that there's reasons why this character is very guarded and very steely. So I don't know, you know, sometimes I just wonder, is it me or is it the performance? performance that that's a little bit off-putting and that might be one of those things i do remember people picking on about the movie is that amongst some of these other actors cameron diaz didn't quite seem like maybe she was in the same league as some of these other folks but i still think malkina pops as a character so i guess i was wondering what the two of you thought of just her as an actress and and you know how, how well she suits this character i've always liked cameron diaz um i mean the, the one thing that we've not talked about is actually the original accent of malkina which was meant to be not Rastafarian, that is the completely the wrong term, more of a Rihanna Like kind Barbados, of, right? Wasn't that supposed to yeah, be? Yeah, the- that's right, that's right. Which she did the entire film and all her dialogue oh. is overdubs, so it has to be out there. I have to hear this. That, that might account for the slightly stilted... It's it's Harrison Ford's voiceover in um, in Blade Runner. Exactly, yeah, because she's doing it in a studio. Or, or Andy McDowell in uh, a, the Greystoke movie, wasn't Yeah. But yeah, in, in terms of her as an act, actress, I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed her. I mean, in the 90s, I mean, good grief. <laughs> I mean, she was like every teenage boy's dream. Um, and I, I love her in Vanilla Sky. Again, I think that's another film that is is uh, not got the appreciation it deserves, maybe because of some hokey performances. But I think she, she plays her character well in that as well. But, you know, she's kind of coming towards her end of her career a bit here as well. So this is kind of like a bit of a swan song for her and... I really don't think it is, but I've come to appreciate her performance in this a lot more over the years. I think her kind of like downplayed, just kind of stoic approach. And the, the, there's one little phone call um, that again, makes a bit more sense now. And it's just as all the kind of shit's kicking off and it's just on a balcony, just talking. And it's like, well, I knew where the drugs were going anyway. It was just her chance of like, let me see what I can do. But now I've kind of got to get out kind of thing. So again, she's almost like a, like, you know, bizarre thrill seeker that could end up with getting her head cut off and thrown in a tip. Well, I do like how she's coded as that cheetah, how she's got the same pattern tattooed on her. Her outfits are amazing. I mean, all the clothes in this movie are fantastic, but just that she is that same animal that is out there waiting to prey on somebody looking for that opportunity looking for that weakness so she can just sink her claws into them i really like that she is that distant thing i would have been curious to see or to hear her with her uh accent that she played in uh originally i think that also would have helped too because of those lines like what are americans up to because she sounds so midwest in the film and it's like yeah no she should be another person from south of the border and really have that distinction between the counselor with his very flat affect i mean penelope cruz kind of is playing in between she's got the latina accent as well but then you know it's very interesting i like how brad pitt's got more of a texas twang to him so the way that the accents play i think it would have told more of a story had malkina had a different accent than that flat midwestern thing um, this must have been in the making of that we're probably going to talk about, but Ridley Scott says something about his approach to accents. And he says that 
he doesn't really worry that much about it. I mean, he tends to have like Brits playing Americans and Americans playing Brits and, you know, not necessarily always a big international cast, but he does seem to cast actors for roles all across the board. And, and uh, like he does period pieces, he does things that are definitely set in certain locales. And I think he's pretty soft about making everybody speak with an accent. And a lot of times people are just kind of vaguely European sounding or vaguely British sounding. And he said that basically if the words are right, he doesn't really sweat the accent too much. So I wonder if that informs a little bit why he was willing to do something such as try, okay, Cameron, do a full on Barbadoan accent. And then like to actually realize in the, in the post-production process, no, this is almost comical or it sounds Maybe she sounded a little too Haymon or something. You know what I mean? She, who knows how well she handled that? But um, I think Toby Kebbell, the the guy at the polo track, he too is like a Brit doing kind of a Southern thing. Or so. it's just it's like I don't know where this person's from, but I know we're supposed to read them as American. You know what I mean? I, there's different things like that that the movie plays with a certain kind of shorthand that uh, you just sort of know what it's going for, and you just kind of go, "All right, I'll allow it." <laughs> I'm so used to Kebbell playing Americans, like with uh, his role in. Uh, King Kong and uh, well, obviously he doesn't speak too much in Planet of the Apes, but just Fantastic Four. I'm always used to hearing his American accent. Yeah, on Servant as well on Apple TV Plus, he's American. For me, he's he's the guy in Dead Man's Shoes. So <laughs> whenever I think of him, I just come back to Dead Man's Shoes every single time. But yeah, Ridley Scott definitely has a thing with accents. Uh, no more stated in House of Gucci. So it's you know he he definitely lets some things slide along the way. But I think he definitely has like a, a, a fondness for British actors as well. Um, even the, the the kind of piece on his arm at the polo is is like a English soap star, even though she has nothing to say. But again, it's. For for an American watching that might be a bit different, but I just know oh it's her from him and it's him from her and all these kind of shows that we have in the UK as well and it's it's very like say generic Texan generic Midwestern accent so it's I think someone well howdy me, partner yeah <laughs> you expect him to get on off a horse drinking his milk but it's it's a bit too comical in some regards and you know it's it's an aside really at the end of the day I think everyone kind of does their bit as as well as they possibly can. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Stephen Fry, the author of Understanding Cormac McCarthy, as well as a lot of other books about McCarthy. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth 
a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hello, this is Mark Bigley, the host of Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. Wake Up Heavy is a show where I talk about movies that blew my mind as a kid. Things like Phantasm. This morning shots are bullshit. Tourist Trap. You are so pretty. Dead and Buried. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. And Halloween 3. A joke on the children. Guests have included friend of the show and host of the Projection Booth podcast, Mike White. Genre film journalists, Anya Stanley, Jerry Smith, Sam Panico, and Simon Fitzjohn. Every once in a while, I even convince my own daughter, Cleo, to join me. That's me. (laughs) Usually, though, it's just me, a mic, and my memories of some really wonderful horror films. So come check us out. WakeUpHeavy.com, SoundCloud.com slash WakeUpHeavy, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget... Anything can happen when you wake up heavy. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. Before we start talking about Cormac McCarthy, I want to talk about you and how did you get into the line of business you're in right now? How'd you become a professor? How'd you start writing about McCarthy and other authors? Well, it's been a long time now. Yeah, uh, I've been a professor for, for some 30 years now, but uh, I came to it in, in one sense a little bit late. I actually studied business and was in the business world for early into my 20s and really discovered reading as a passion, uh, particularly, you know, the 19th century and early 20th century in my 20s. So, uh, yeah, it was it was something that just grabbed me in my mid-20s. And I immediately sort of hit the idea of reading and writing. And I've done both some fiction and some uh, and a lot of scholarship, right, as a professor. And I uh, went out, went back to graduate school and uh, ultimately got my Ph.D. in my mid-30s and became an American literature professor. Always was interested in the literature of the West and 19th century literature, what they call the romance tradition. But that really means people like Melville and Hawthorne. And so there was a natural nexus. And about, oh, just maybe almost 30 years ago now, I really discovered Cormac McCarthy with his Kind of breakout novel, 
which was All the Pretty Horses. He won the National Book Award for that one in 1992. But he'd been writing for many years before that and been, been well recognized. But that was my entry into him. And I became very involved. It worked with my previous interests. And I've been uh, involved in some other authors. But my central focus has been McCarthy now for, for something like 20 years. Yeah, I know you've written about what uh, Larry McMurtry and um, some other Western writers, uh, well, even Eastern writers like Edgar Allan Poe. That's right. That's right. Again, I, I originally, when I did my doctorate, I studied the 19th century as my primary area of specialization. I was focused in on folks like Poe, Hawthorne, and Melville. But again, those writers are, are American writers in the sense that they have these pretty deep philosophical preoccupations, as does McCarthy. And in that context, McCarthy was a natural for me in the West as a kind of space that lends to that kind of contemplation. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote a book on William McMurtry, a book on Cormac McCarthy. I've edited a number of collections on Cormac McCarthy and written a number of individual articles. Uh, we have a society. I'm the president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. I've been involved uh, really centrally in the literature of the American West in recent years. What was it about McCarthy that really just grabbed your imagination and your attention? Well, you know, it goes back to before McCarthy for me. In, in reading, what's always attracted me is a certain lyricism and a certain quality of language. So it really comes down to aesthetics. It really comes down to beauty. And what was particularly notable about McCarthy is that he deals with some really tough stuff, right? You know, violence and uh, degradation. And, you know, in the case of, of his film, The Counselor, right, he's dealing with the drug wars, really difficult things. But he manages to render those things ironically, strangely, and interestingly in this beautifully lyrical language that finds its way not only into his, his expository prose, but also in his uh, in in the dialogue and monologues that many of his characters have in his screenplays and and in his plays as well as as in his novels. So it really was the beauty of the language, the power of the language, but also this sort of nexus between language and idea. You know, he really dies. Really, he's interested in big, sometimes unresolvable questions, and the questions that interest me as a human being, and as a literary scholar, and as a sort of lay philosopher is. The ones that you can never resolve, right? that you can only wrestle with. To put it in kind of metaphorical terms, McCarthy is one of those authors that wrestles with the gods. And he's doing that perpetually. And he's comfortable doing that. What has been his relationship with Hollywood over the years? Because like you, I came to him through all the pretty horses, but I was coming through the movie version of it. Right. Uh, well, he's had a relationship with Hollywood for a long time, uh, depending on how you think about Hollywood uh, in terms of, of film and cinema in general. You know, in 1977, he wrote a screenplay that was adapted into film uh, called The Gardener's Son. Uh, and it was done by the PBS Vision series. Really fascinating uh, and interesting story. Uh, he's written a number of screenplays uh, that uh, or started on a number of screenplays that haven't been adapted, and there seems, uh, and we don't know a lot about about his his, you know, sort of internal contemplations or ambitions. We know some things, um, but he seemed to have wanted to write for film for a long time. In fact, uh, the Border Trilogy, which begins with all the pretty horses, actually begins with a screenplay that was going to be uh, Cities of the Plain. It was never developed, and ultimately he went back and wrote the entire story of two characters. So he's had this relationship with cinema, film, and Hollywood for, for a long time, and certainly some ambitions in that regard. 
you know, it's pretty pleasing to see that some of his novels, particularly his later novels, have been quite successfully adapted to uh, the cinema. And then, of course, his experience is uh, writing of The Counselor, the screenplay of The Counselor, which I see that as a is a is quite a remarkable film. There is a lot of uh, critical mixed reviews on, on, on the film generally, but uh, it's one of those films that I think will stand the test of time. And I think that uh, I think that he probably I would imagine is satisfied with the way that that film articulates his late vision. I think the most successful adaptation of his work that I have seen is No Country for Old Men. But I'm curious how much of that is McCarthy versus how much of that is the Coen brothers, because you're getting that layer of interpretation between there. It's a lot of McCarthy, and it's actually kind of magical in a way that two very distinct visions and aesthetics are able to merge in such a brilliant way. Uh, the Coen brothers were famous for saying in an interview that, that what they did when they wrote that screenplay was just sit down with a book and, and, and transcribe it. Now, it's a little bit of an overstatement, right? Uh, and, and certainly, it's a, a film is not only the screenplay, it's the directorial vision in terms of the acting and all of those things. But no, it is very much McCarthy's vision, McCarthy's sensibility, particularly in that novel, which is a distinct novel in terms of style. It's minimalistic, it's uh, stark, and it's simple in the best way. There are moments in the film where you sort of get some of the Coen brothers' sort of comic vision. And I don't think McCarthy would object to that. Uh, I think there are some very funny moments in McCarthy's writing. I think you are getting a good entry into Cormac McCarthy with No Country for Old Men. And they were the right folks to to adapt it. Uh, absolutely. You know, I'm very pleased with that adaptation. How does The Counselor fit into McCarthy's larger body of work? And so far as what are some of the themes that he's dealt with before that he continues to deal with in The Counselor? The Counselor is very much an expression of a kind of through line, especially in McCarthy's late work. What I would say about McCarthy is that he is very much a philosophical writer. And what I mean by that is that he takes pre-existing and existing sort of worldviews, coherent philosophical worldviews, and he puts them at play in narrative form, right? And he's done that primarily in his novels. And one of his central, you know, McCarthy has been a fellow and a trustee at the Santa Fe Institute uh, for decades. And of course, the Santa Fe Institute is a think tank that deals with the study of complex adaptive systems, a complexity theory, what's uh, what is, you know, free previously been called, you know, chaos theory. And really what they're concerned about is what McCarthy's concerned about philosophically is this whole question of free will versus determinism, right? And this idea that an individual makes a relatively small kind of choice, not so small in the, in, in the counselor, but in other contexts, uh, relatively innocuous choice. And it has these, these uh, broad, sweeping, cataclysmic consequences, right? That goes at least back to No Country for Old Men and the coin toss uh, and Shagur, right? So the idea that human beings make choices, that we actually exist in a kind of determined, closed material system here in the world, uh, this notion of determinism, but this peculiar kind of materialist determinism that's predicated on the idea that we do exercise free will. We do make these individual choices. But as in the case of the council, right, you cannot predict the outcome of those consequences. And the outcome of those consequences may be uh, tremendously consequential. 
Uh, so that fundamental philosophical theme is, is present, right, in The Counselor and is given beautiful expression by the film in general, but especially at the end by the cartel jefe, who talks precisely in those terms about the counselor's choice and how he can't go back, right, and set, you know, the world right again. And if you'll allow me to continue just a little bit, I would say one of the things that is also uh, a tremendous preoccupation for McCarthy all the way back to his early works is art and beauty and its relationship to the world. And if you'll, you'll notice in The Counselor, it's just a beautiful rendering of, of an aesthetic idea, particularly early on with the jeweler. And he's talking to the jeweler and the jeweler really sees the world in sort of aesthetic terms. And he sees it in terms of, he says that the diamond can only be understood in the context of the flaw. And he says, right, he also says that that he, as a jeweler, deals is in a cynical business, right? He deals in imperfection, right? And so the jeweler's idea is in the world we live in, which is often a violent and tremendously flawed world, the only way we can really talk about beauty is in terms of the strangeness and the flawed nature of any object. So that goes all the way back to people like Edgar Allan Poe, right? When Poe talks about beauty, he talks about strangeness, right? Uh, the angular reality of beautiful objects. So, so I think McCarthy sees the world in those kinds of aesthetic terms, but he binds them together with these philosophical sorts of, of, of questions. And in that context, the counselor as a character is tragic in a classical kind of Greek and Aristotelian sense, right? In other words, he is, on the one hand, very admirable, right? Um, he sees the world in those kinds of aesthetic terms. He loves his, his fiance deeply, uh, and he appreciates those, the, the beauty of the diamond and the beauty of his fiance. But at the same time, his tragic flaw is that he cannot disassociate beauty from wealth. He's unable fundamentally to do that. Therefore, he makes his choice, and ergo his outcome, if you know what I mean. Having that jeweler character near the beginning of the film is so smart because it does seem to set up so many things. And his whole discussion about Semitic culture and uh, about heroes and just how there's no heroes anymore. I really, it just, that seems to put the whole movie through a different lens. Right, it does. And, and of course he distinguishes between the heroes of the Greeks and the heroes of his tradition, his Judaic tradition. And of course, he says, right, he says that the hero in the Judaic tradition is Judaic tradition is the man of God, the man of the monotheistic God. And that you know brings up a concern that is not picked up in the counselor in any kind of elaborate way, but is very much present in other McCarthy works. And that is that McCarthy as an author is, is God haunted. He's interested in if God exists. Uh, if he exists, what is God's relationship to us? Is there a relationship in that context? Again, he doesn't really thematize that as much, but he begins to echo it and hint at it uh, with the with the dialogue with the jeweler in his discussion of the Judaic tradition. Yeah, and you were talking about that whole idea of determinism, fate. Just that there's that coincidence that's too much for the drug world to handle that he helped out the Rosie Perez character and her son. I love that that is the, the knife that goes between the ribs. Right. And he, and that is rendered for us in terms of, of a very intricate plot. You know, I, I think that the, the, the 
the film invites being rewatched at a number of levels. One, just in terms of making sure you put together the details of plot. Uh, and uh, that's not a flaw in my view. It's just a challenge that the film presents us with. But it is rendered to us as a coincidence. It is, there's no question, no real debate, at least in my mind, that that is pure coincidence. The Brad Pitt character actually says that the drug folks, right? You know, the drug folks uh, don't believe in coincidences. They've heard about them, but they've just never seen one, right? You know, which is pretty funny. But McCarthy is saying they're wrong about that. But coincidence, even coincidence, is just one node in an elaborate play of cause and effect in this, this system that is the world. In other words, there were a whole series of choices that led the counselor to make that decision to help that woman. And, and um, it, it didn't just, it, that wasn't a starting point. It was one coincidence of many that lead to this unpredictable system. It's, it's a dark worldview. But there is an implicit message, I think, right? I mean, it's very, it's very traditional and Greek and Renaissance in its tragedy, in that the, the implicit message is you may not be able to predict your choices, but in the end, you know what's right and wrong. You know what a moral choice is. And, and take genuine care. Of the McCarthy stuff that I've encountered it feels very much like it's a world of men. So um, when it comes to the Cameron Diaz character, I'm very curious what your take on her character is. You know, his is very much, a, you know, a, a world of, he has more male characters, more developed male characters than any other. Now he, he is, he does have some, some very sympathetic and articulate uh, female characters in his, his novels, particularly Duane Alfonso in all the pretty horses. And, and, and there, there are others. She's a fascinating character because she's the one that sets the backdrop, right? That lays the foundation. She's a femme fatale in a traditional sense, but also in a tremendously textured and portentous sense because she carries the theme. She's the one that tells us right in the beginning, right? When Reiner says, you know, you're cold. And she says, truth has no temperature. And at the end, right, when she's talking right to her, uh, to her banker, right, she says she associates Beauty. She's she appreciates beauty as much as anyone else, but she associates it with predation and the act of the hunter. She calls. She talks about grace and she talks about freedom, and she talks about the hunter's identity is inseparable from who he is, is inseparable from what he does. Right. I mean, all of that, and and she admires that, and that's pretty vexing to us as as as, as viewers, right? To to see on the one hand. Uh, we can understand how she articulates those ideas. It's hard to argue with the idea that truth has no temperature. The question becomes, and the issue becomes, and our, our volition becomes involved because she still makes, she still responds to that world in a tremendously selfish, predacious, uh, and caustic way. The argument would be that she may be right about truth having no temperature. She's not, arguably not right about how we give in to that reality and whether or not there isn't a possibility of resistance in the world. In other words, the counselor could have chosen differently. And the character of Laura is interesting in that context. She talks about hope. When she's talking to Malkina, she says, don't you think it's reasonable to have hope? In, in some sense, I, I see that as, as one moment of McCarthy asking that very question. Yes, we will stipulate the world's brutality. But we do not have to stipulate our response to it. 
And that's where we can take Malkina to task, not for what she says or how she views the world, but how she participates in it. It's being a screenplay from the jump, from the get-go. This might be a strange question. What do you think of the adaptation? And were there things that he wrote that didn't end up on the screen? A few things. When you read the actual screenplay, uh, there are a, a few word changes here and there, uh, some modifications and a few things that were eliminated. It is naturally what happened with almost any you know, screenplay. Most screenplays don't find their, their way into publication for, for, our, you know, for our consumption that way. But not, not a tremendous amount. I really admire Ridley Scott's adaptation. I admire it for, for a couple of reasons. It revolves around these, this idea of aesthetics, right? On the one hand, if you think about, about the way that the world is rendered visually, cinemagraphically, through Ridley Scott and his cinematographers and all of his art designers, you get this contrast between the simple, strange beauty of the diamond and the crass, materialistic beauty that we associate especially with Reiner. Notice the clothes that he wears, the way he does his hair, the way he paints his house, even the color of his drinks and all of this. So you've got this contrast between what many might say is a genuine beauty and the kind of corruption of the beautiful that takes place in this kind of materialistic context. I think that's intentional on Ridley Scott's part. And McCarthy participates in that with some of his direction in the context of the screenplay, but it's also very much Ridley Scott's vision. I, I think that we may not respond to some of the visual excess, but I think that he's thematizing what McCarthy is concerned with, and that is this relationship of beauty and truth and how the way we respond to the world is in part an aesthetic act, and we can corrupt the world through money through greed. And not only when we corrupt that world, it becomes crass and it becomes visually, in some sense, on the borderline of unappealing. And I think that's intentional. So I, I'm a, a great admirer of Ridley Scott's vision. There, there are things that, that can be challenged. Uh, I know folks, and I, I respect them, who, who are very concerned about the representation of women in, in the film. Not just Malkina, but the way in which they're talked about by McCarthy. But I think we do need to understand that when women are degraded in conversation, it's usually by pretty deplorable people. I do think there's a context for that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that uh, I think it's a it's a fine adaptation, and I'm pretty darn confident that uh, it's going to stand the test of, of time over the years. And I would I'd be willing to speculate that McCarthy, although he hasn't commented on it as far as I know, that McCarthy is comfortable with with what he's done. And you know, some critics have have uh, have. A difficulty with it, but usually those critics were looking for a thriller. They were looking for for just kind of a, a fast-paced thriller. This is not a fast-paced thriller. This is a work of crime cinema, more in the tradition of noir than it is of anything else, at least in terms of the way it's thematizing the darkness in the world. And there's there's a number of critics that have said, in spite of those who dissent in their admiration of the film. There are many who who admire the film and think that it might really enter the ranks of a cinematic masterpiece sometime in the future. And, and you know, it's hard to predict, but there's a lot of great cinema out there. I'm very happy as a McCarthy scholar with the fact that he was finally able to, to adapt, uh, to get a screenplay uh, produced, adapted into film. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty darn comfortable with, with how his vision is succinctly articulated in the film. 
it was very remarkable to see him on set through all of the behind the scenes things, just how involved he was with it. I, that made me very happy to see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I imagine he would, he would want to be, you know, he's, he's had some involvement in other films, but not as much. Uh, he stays pretty hands off. Uh, uh, and certainly with the Coen brothers, uh, but he has both in certainly No Country for Old Men, The Road, and Into the Counselor been, I suppose I would say, intellectually and emotionally involved at some level, very concerned about those adaptations. And I think he's generally pretty comfortable with them. You get a sense from occasional comments that he's made, interviews that he's done. Uh, and I'm, I'm pleased that that, that and I hope that that is true. I particularly admire The Counselor and uh, in No Country for Old Men. I've heard about adaptations of Blood Meridian for decades now. What is the story with that as far as it's not ever coming to a theater near you? Well, you know, McCarthy himself said that it would involve an act of courage, I'll say. I'll change his wording, but an act of courage to do it. But he's, he, he thinks it could be done. And so there's a sense that, that it could be done. It's changed hands on, on a number of occasions for various reasons. It has to do with screen rights and other things that, you know, I, I confess I'm not familiar with the details of, and I'm not sure that too many people are. But there's also, the, of course, the question of how the film would be rendered, how the violence, it's its arguably you know, one of the most violent books uh, that have ever been written, and whether or not that violence could be uh, could be represented effectively on screen, or how might that look? How might the individual characters, like the judge, be cast? And that's, I think, where McCarthy is talking about, about the necessity of, of some kind of, of, of courage. Interestingly enough, this idea of realism Right. The idea of just taking something as we might observe it in the world, I think would be problematic in the adaptation of Blood Meridian. I think that's the struggle. And I know that that there will be folks that would disagree with me on this, but there are a lot of moments of the of the carnivalesque and um, haunting kind of phantasmagoric imagery in Blood Meridian. No one would, would, I think, disagree with that. But I think it requires a different kind of cinematic vision, one that embraces excess one that might even employ uh, some kind of of animation or uh, more of an avant-garde rather than strictly realist approach. Uh, I do think it would take that kind of guts to make something that clearly some people are going to object to, but at the same time is really trying to get at the heart of, of his ultimate vision. I hope it happens. I don't know if it will. I don't know if it will anytime time soon. I imagine that ultimately somebody's going to step up to it. Uh, I don't know the status of it now, which was your primary question. <laughs> you have written so much about McCarthy over the years. I'm curious, how has your relationship to his work changed, or it might not have, but how has it evolved over the years? Well, you know, as I said, you know, before it, it began really as a primary interest in the literature of the American West, and uh, I was captivated by his manner of expression. Uh, as I've evolved over the years, as I've gotten older, just as a human being over the years, the kinds of questions that McCarthy is ans- answering this, this or asking, excuse me, in terms of these these portentous philosophical issues and questions seem to me to be central questions that, that all human beings ask in one level or another and in some way or another. And I certainly have. And I, I've gotten more involved, more interested in two things. One, the way he grapples with those sort of abstract, sometimes obtuse philosophical issues. 
But what I've observed as time has gone on, as his work has evolved, particularly as, as we move into the Border Trilogy and the Road, the way that philosophical notions become humanized, the way that we have to be concerned with the implications of any idea or any reality in a human life. So in the road, for example, you know, what do we make of, of the idea of a, of, a, of a landscape that is bereft? Uh, how do we think about that? How do we constitute or reconstitute our rela- human relationships? Uh, well, in some sense, McCarthy would tell us that that whether whether existing in an apocalyptic landscape or post-apocalyptic landscape or not, we do exist in a difficult world. And so ultimately, when I relate to my children or to my wife, when I experience loss, uh, my parents, for example, I'm ultimately drawn back to these, these very human questions that are not at all separable from large philosophical questions about choice and free will and the nature of the divine and the nature of the good in, in all of those, those things. So it's that, that sense that the way that philosophy and humanistic considerations dovetail, particularly in his later works, that have sort of deepened my, my interest in McCarthy. Uh, and, and I still read him over and over and over again. Set him down for a little while, but go back to a book uh, yet again, and it's, there's always something new there, and there's always a new sort of affective experience to have with the language and with the images rendered. That's how it's evolved, I guess. You being in academia, I know that the phrase is what? Publish or perish. So I'm curious, what are you working on now? Well, actually, I have another book on McCarthy coming out. Oh, great. Right. It's been accepted by the University of Alabama Press. Uh, so it's in, in production now, in the early stages of production. It'll come out next year, uh, in, actually in early 2023. I'll give you its title. It's called uh, Unguessed Kinships. And Unguessed Kinships is a, is a, uh, is a, a term uh, that's drawn from McCarthy's Blood Meridian. But it's called Unguessed Kinships, Literary Naturalism and the Geography of Hope in Cormac McCarthy. And the idea is to explore the influence of late 19th and early 20th century authors, the post-Darwinian authors like Jack London, Theodore Dreiser, Frank Norris, Stephen Crane, and even later people like William Faulkner. The influence of, of those folks on McCarthy, their aesthetic and their worldview, and how he sort of constitutes a kind of a response to the reality of a post-Darwinian world. So that one's coming out. It's a, it's a, it'll be out next year. It, I cover everything uh, from, from his first novel, uh, The Orchard Keeper, all the way through The Counselor. Uh, and I have something to say about pretty much everything he, he's, he's done. So that's what's, what's going on, on for me now. And of course, I think I'd like to do some, some uh, individual work on some of his screenplays and, and his, uh, his drama. But we're all waiting for his novel, The Passenger. We don't know when it's coming out. We do have a sense that it's near completion. It will come out at some point, and uh, I'll be all over that when that one comes out, right? I'll be ready to have something to, to explore and ultimately something to, to say about it. Professor Fry, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Appreciate you having me, Mike. I appreciate it. It's been fun.
right. We are back and we are talking about the counselor and I got to say that making of, so the, the Blu-ray comes out and it's got the extended cut. It's got the theatrical cut and then it's got a making of, and the making of is one of the strangest things because it's basically the movie, the extended director's cut with voiceover from Scott and then it'll take breaks and then play behind the scenes things. And I think there might be a way to see it without Scott's voiceover, but then it would still be very disruptive because then you hop from the movie to suddenly here's the behind the scenes making of. And I think there's like 13 different times that it switches into that. It was effective. It was three and a half hours long, the making of, because it's the movie plus these behind the scenes, but certainly learned a lot and I thought it was pretty well put together. I wouldn't mind seeing more making of like this. One of the stark things for me from the making of as well was just the overall production. I think that plays into, you know, Ridley Scott being a, a northerner in, <laughs> from England as well, knows how to stretch a pound or a dollar in this case as well. And, and just what they did with the settings. Uh, I mean, Spain is Spain is used throughout the history of film for, for those kind of like kind of sun-drenched locations as well. But even in terms of like the, the Mexican-American border and, and what they did with all that as well was was like a, just a really good insight. Um, how much of it was filmed in London to me was absolutely crazy, especially the Amsterdam scene. Um, you know, it's a testament to Ridley Scott's um, skills as a filmmaker as well, that he can put you in a world which is somewhere completely foreign to what you're actually looking at. It's, uh, it was, yeah, it was a real eye-opening documentary. One of the things that comes across whenever you hear Ridley Scott talking about making a movie, yeah, you do hear his little tricks for stretching the budget, but you also almost as a point of bragging and maybe it's just at 80 you get to it's like he's like yeah i made this in seven weeks yeah it took us two minutes to shoot this yeah we, we did this in half a take like he's just so he's so like he's a machine at this point at making movies but he knows how to put together and it, but it's not like they lack artistry at all you know like he is a journeyman director in so many ways but his movies have such an atmosphere and such a look to them and such a feel oftentimes that he brings to it and he, he you, he's got all that in his head if you've ever watched which i'm sure you both have because we did for this but any kind of making of material with him, he's it's, he's always very focused on like it's almost like he's a functional Terry Gilliam. He's so obsessed with like what's in the frame and having some inventive process, but he somehow moves at a clip and manages to motivate people. And I don't know, you don't hear a lot of horror stories about him as a director. I think this movie we've hinted at how much it has these strong characters in it. So he is sort of an actor's director too, in a way that you might not expect or you might not think about until you stack up some of his movies. So no, I think that whole that whole the, the way this movie was done with um, very careful uh, like exteriors in some real locales, but most of the interiors were shot in England. Most of the exteriors were shot in Spain. And like, that's how they kind of knitted the world together with like a few key moments of shooting in a particular place that they need for, for verisimilitude, but the rest of the time. And if you hear him in the commentary, he's kind of proud of it. He's like, Oh, be- believe it or not, that's in England. You know, that you'd believe it was Mexico. And I think he thinks it looks like Mexico because they put a yellow tent on the, <laughs> on the picture, but that's a trope we can unpack at another time. But that's just something the directors like to do. Oh, uh, south of the border, make it yellow, you know. Yeah, I see that one on Reddit sometimes where it's like, this is what Mexico looks like. This is what Mexico looks like in the movies. It was good hearing him talk about the kind of like costume design as well and and and, and things like props, because even if I had a, a ridiculous amount of money, which I don't, there is nothing that would make me gravitate towards Dolce & Gabbana clothing and things like that. And it's it's almost as if these characters have been so well fleshed out that 
if someone has a lot of money and you're within that world, you're going to go and go for the tacky thing because that seems normal to them. That's kind of like the the, the overall. But the the funniest line for me was like when he's talking about the diamonds in the, in the dealership and he's like, "Yep, that there's worth about a million pounds." It's like I don't get it. You're still looking at glass, which I like, don't tell that to a woman. <laughs> it's like it's just again he's kind of coming back and he's even though he's he's clearly like a multimillionaire, he's kind of guy that looks at a price tag and goes, "Nah, we're not we're not getting that." <laughs> I mean, he shoots two movies a year. That's probably how he does it. He doesn't he doesn't break the bank if he doesn't have to. It's not like he doesn't make big budget movies. It's just that you don't usually hear about even when his movies kind of underperform as this one did in terms of not earning back the budget, at least uh, not that we should be over obsessed with with box office. But I always am like, oh, it earned back its budget. And then some. OK, that's a successful movie. Right. But, uh, you know, it's a little shocking that they weren't able to earn back 25 million. And I guess a marketing budget for this movie that has, as we've said, some like true glamour in it. So many of these performances are... And, and if you like these actors, you actually get what she came for. If you're a Brad Pitt fan, you get some really good Brad Pitt. If you like Michael Fassbender, if you like Cameron Diaz, if you like Penelope Cruz even, though she doesn't have as much to do, but they all have like something real to do in this movie. So Yeah, I never would have known that this was shot in the UK and in uh, Spain because it just feels so American. And I went back and I rewatched uh, No Country for Old Men last night and I'm like, this feels... Very much the same. It feels like that uh, Llewellyn could turn around and there would be Javier Bardem's uh, camp over here versus the where all the the trucks were where uh, um, one massacre had taken place. So it just yeah, it definitely feels like it's of the same world. I, I kept thinking it could spill over to Breaking Bad too. Like it's in that same kind of like the, the, this is like the world that the, the guys that show up on Breaking Bad that are like, you don't want to mess with the people that I work for. This is about the people that those characters work for. You know what I mean? This, it, you don't usually go that deep on there, but I do think that there's, there's a lot of ways people have used and maybe sometimes culturally, who knows how we feel about that, but th- that whole situation on the border is sort of become the, it's like movie shorthand for this is about as bad as it could get in terms of amoral behavior. You mentioned Sicario earlier, James. This is, you know, that this kind of feels like it would overlay with that world pretty easily too. And no country for old men's like the, the go-to comparison. Like you say, it's, it's moral choices, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing going on. You, you have the overriding metaphor of, of death, although there's a presence in no country for old men. Whereas here it's kind of like, you know, the inevitability, I suppose, um, and, and like you say, bad decisions that just loom over you that you, that you can't escape from. Um, they, they go hand in hand. I, in fact, I wish I'd have maybe watched No Country for Old Men in, in preparation for this, actually. That's a great movie, but it does have those things that we've mentioned, too, where there's a protagonist who's kind of – and No Country for Old Men literally sort of takes a, a character off the table that you might have thought was going to be your rooting interest in the movie. But this movie just sort of never really puts a full character on the table. Like, you're, you know, this guy – again, it, it, not, in an, not in a non-deliberate way, I think the counselor is something of a cipher. You know, it, we're meant to see that he's a little bit shallow. We've kind of been talking about that this whole time, but like, that's another sort of subversive thing to do with your narrative is to like not give you the, the expected pleasure of a character that you're rooting for. You know, even if you don't want bad things to happen, you don't, like we've said, he kind of feels like he steps in this mess and just doesn't seem to care that he's about to step in a mess and then, you know, doesn't have anything to do to get himself out of it. What's so interesting that you don't see Llewellyn die in the film? You know, your main character you don't see him die you just see the the aftermath you don't see his wife die does she die does she manage to talk sugar out of killing her probably not but that whole idea you know sugar is the fate sugar is that unstoppable bolito that's about to choke the life out of you and cut your your arteries i mean 
but he is a walking personification of that, which I appreciate. And then he's got his unusual weapon with the air compressor thing that he's got going on. But you're right as far as the, the Southwest and the drug trade. I'm surprised that we haven't seen more neo-noirs set down there. I mean, we talked about uh, White Sands a few months ago on the show, and there are definitely a lot of films that will take place in the Southwest because it is that it's that thing that we had, um, you know, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. It's that whole idea of this area is off limits. They do things different here. You know, your life isn't worth a dime when you go into Chinatown, when you go into Juarez. Now it's very, very much a noir thing where bad people will do bad things. And that if you are a good person and you go into that area, you're going to be embroiled in bad things as well. Treat Williams film flashpoint is, is, is maybe another good one where it's kind of things, nefarious things happening, going out in the desert as well. But there's one, the one thing I just wanted to come back to on the no country for old men as well. And it's um, during that kind of final scene where he flips the coin and she says to him, it's like, it's not the coin, it's you. And in, in, in the counselor's case, it's not them, it's you. It's, it's all down to you and your decisions as well. And it's, yeah, just nobody seems to make good decisions in uh, Cormac McCarthy um, screenplays and novels. Well, I mean, they all have this kind of random quality, or maybe to what I was saying earlier, like a true-to-life quality of not always having these easily neat linear events, even though it is rather linear, you still have this feeling of like, oh, well, this this happened to this character and this happened to this character, and those two things aren't exactly related, but they become related. It's that – in The Counselor, it's the coincidence you referred to, James, that the, the cartel is not going to stand for this coincidence that you happen to be the, the lawyer of this woman and her son and that you were around this time that we've had this thing go awry and this shipment's missing and you know all that stuff. They're not going to abide that. I think in – no Country for Old Men, it's not so much a character who's putting that together, but it's you, the viewer, who's seeing the kind of unlucky coincidences that dot the landscape of these characters and kind of coming into contact with each other. But I love how at the end of No Country for Old Men, there's this moment of – you even think maybe it's going to be this easy thing of, oh, he escapes. He just killed – likely killed the innocent wife, which is, again, yeah, right, very close to Penelope Cruz's character. What happens to Kelly McDonald is a very similar thing. Uh, she gets to face what's happening to her a little bit more. But like he goes out and like he, you almost think he's going to die in a wreck and that's going to be your poetic justice. But the fact that he then is able to just sort of shake that off and walk away – it's kind of similar to, I mean, it's what makes Tommy Lee Jones's character lose such hope in, in that film and also what you're left with at the end of The Counselor. It is that feeling of like, oh yeah, even the, like, you don't get happy coincidences, you know? <laughs> we'll, we'll give you a lot of bad ones, but we're not going to give you any good ones in these movies, you know? That's almost a rule of writing. They say that like happy coincidences are bad writing, but bad coincidences usually make for good stories. Yeah, this is just one bad coincidence after another. Uh, and I don't know, there's something, again, that feels very bleak, but it's also, true to life somehow to say that it's fun to see some movies that take that approach. I don't know if that's every Cormac McCarthy story, uh, but it certainly is something that the Coen brothers do a lot. Uh, and I think that this is, you know, maybe not something really Scott. I don't think his movies are usually this, this bleak, but there is something like he really does lean into it. And if you hear him talk about it, he's really happy about the fact that he's got that kind of story to tell. <laughs> like he thinks it should have been a hit. I, I kind of agree with him. It was his feedback on the, another thing that made me laugh is is he kind of had a, a real kind of dig at film journalists on on the uh, on the making of as well. He's like, only a few got it. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, don't look at film Twitter, Ridley. Stay far away from it. <laughs> I've never read No Country for Old Men. I'm very curious how much of the dialogue that's in the Coen Brothers film 
is directly from McCarthy versus filtered through the Coen brothers because they are such artists when it comes to dialogue. And there are so many good lines in No Country for Old Men. Where'd you get the pistol? At the getting place. I'd be very curious because we talked about the purple prose of the counselor. How purple is the prose from No Country for Old Men, the book, versus what we end up in the movie? It's a good question. I haven't read it either, but I've always been curious about that same question. Like how much of what's in that movie was just on the page and how much did they, did they colonize it? I'd have a guess anything. It's probably going to be those, those kind of, like you kind of say in, in the council, it's two people talking, two people talking. I think in No Country for Old Men, you definitely get a vibe that that is pure, you know, novelization through to screenplay of Cormac McCarthy's. Um, I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head, like the, the meeting with Woody Harrelson and, and, and those kind of things, whereas that for me would be pulled straight from the novel and, and put to screen. Yeah. If there's one thing that I regret about no country for old, for old men is that I think Woody Harrelson now should be in almost every Coen brothers film, kind of like how Clooney was for a while, but that doesn't seem to be the case. I, I really like him a lot. And I think that he's such a great actor and people don't realize they think of him still as being, you know, goofy and he, takes the goofy roles, you know, Venom and uh, uh, playing Carnage and those things, but he can play goofy and he can play serious very, very well. And I like in something like True Detective, he's the perfect foil for McConaughey's kind of unhinged character. He's doing bad stuff as well, but he's just not nearly as loony. Yeah, no, I, th- I always love seeing him pop up. And I remember thinking that same thing about like when he was in No Country for Old Men, just thinking as often as the case when the Coens will use somebody like that, you go, oh, how has this person not been part of their kind of little entourage of actors all along? You know, it seems like he should have been in at least two or three Coen movies at this point. But um, are, do, do we still have a Coen brothers? Have they split up or is it just right now that they seem to be doing different things? I know that's a side topic, but it is very concerning to me. <laughs> It's interesting, too, that No Country for Old Men takes place in, I think, 1980. And to look at how the drug trade is so different in 1980 versus in 2013, when the film comes out, when The Counselor comes out, wow, what a difference between those two. And it really does feel like The Counselor is speaking to, you know, oh, you thought it was bad in 1980? We'll look at it 33 years later and see how bad it is now. There's one throwaway line from Westray. I think it's when he's talking about you can put mine offshore. He puts his money offshore, but you're not using my guys. And he just throws – it's a throwaway. It's like you wouldn't believe the amount of who's involved in this kind of thing. So he's clearly talking, especially in – do not want to speak in any kind of derogatory terms about Mexico, but he's clearly implying that you know down there it's a free-for-all. People from high levels of government are going to be involved, same within the U.S. as well. So all these people have got the cherries in the pie, and it is a worldwide network when if you think of – Back in the 80s, you're thinking of like people flying over the Atlantic in little planes and, and landing in Miami and those kind of things. Whereas, yeah, like now it's that kind of sporadic network. They know how to use computers. It's all digital banking and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of gone from being a, a kind of money laundering, try and sneak things over the border operation to this like network that is just a behemoth that is never going to stop. This kind of like fictional war on drugs is never going to end because... Every time you cut the head off a snake, a new one's going to appear. So it's it's it is a very very good comparison to see how like thirty odd years down the line, how things have kind of grown into this monster that can't be stopped. I mentioned Sicario before, but like the way that that movie kind of has a protagonist who is also sort of t- told 
you you can't do it. You can't you can't defeat this world. You're not of this world. That's not something you normally see in that type of movie either. Is somebody who survives to the end, but with like they're they're totally cowed into silence about what just happened because they they can't wrestle these forces, you know, and that Sicario world is definitely that kind of contemporary world that we're talking about where it's like, it's gotten even more bloodthirsty and it's even more connected at such high levels that all you could ever do is fail. No matter how far, if you, you know, you might be able to succeed up to a point, but at a certain point you're going to come up against a level that you can't, you can't get past. And it's like, even do-gooders are going to do poorly in this world. Not just people who are trying to make a buck like the counselor, but even people that are just trying to do the right thing, they're not going to have enough to do against this evil there's like a common thread that a majority of these films have as well. And it's at the start, there's like an overhead, like almost um, aerial shot of Juarez. And there's a kind of like hillside slums as well. And as soon as you see that, you're just like, Oh God, here we go. Cause it's, it's, that's almost like a marker for just how bad this place is. And there's the bit um, just, just going back to the counselor, sorry, where he's kind of down on his luck in the bar and you can just hear gunfire, machine gunfire happening outside. And it's like, it's insane that a place like Juarez exists. It truly is because it's like this big open secret that if you go there, it's like the, the, the old saying in, in, in Italy, it's like see Naples and die. It's like go to Juarez and yeah, get machine gunned down, get your head chopped off. <laughs> Any of those things, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Didn't like location scouts for the show Narcos get killed uh, f- uh, not too long ago? I feel like that happened. Really? Uh, I don't know if it was in Juarez, but definitely in that kind of – you know, border scenario where it was like, okay, wow, you can't even be some geeks with a couple cameras uh, <laughs> driving along a road. I mean, who knows where they were? I do sometimes wonder how they get some of the shots they get in, in you know, stories like that. Like shooting in Spain seems to be the the safest way to go about it. Shoot in Spain, add some digital walls so that you look like you're at the border. Yeah. Digital wall probably costs a lot less to make and is probably more effective for people as well. I, th- I think we've done the film justice, if if I'm being brutally honest, because it's a film that, again, I remember when it came out, like it was yesterday, and it was when I was still kind of paying attention to more mainstream critics like a Mark Commode in the UK, and I remember listening to his radio show, and it was just effectively taking the mick um, out of the film as a whole. It wasn't a good review by any stretch. It was making fun of the dialogue, because, again, I... I can't imagine he's ever gone back to watch the film again and it was it kind of left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth um around that time and it was a film that i definitely felt is is going to gain a multiple rewatch but i think if we want anything to be taken away from this episode is that people go back and actually sit down with the film maybe read the screenplay as well because you know i got through it in the night as i'm sure you guys did as well is that just take your time with it and once you've finish watching the film, just sit with it for a bit and, and take it on board. And there's a lot to unravel with it. And there's a lot of performances as well that are absolutely superb. And I'm going out on a limb saying it's one of my favorite Ridley Scott films. It is one of my favorite Ridley Scott films because I feel it's endlessly watchable. And every time I watch it, I'm going to get something a bit different from it. There might be a character trait or even a tick that I've not noticed before, like Westray's hand. And his, he, he does some little thing with his hand that I'd never noticed the first time round. So just, yeah. Give it another go and 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 just see if you can take on board what we've taken from it as well, because there's a lot to unpack and you're never going to get through it in one or two watches. I guess I'll just kind of pile on a little bit with that idea that when I first saw this movie, I had a what the fuck reaction. Then I looked forward a year later to talking on a podcast with my friends 
on Movie Schmovie, like I said, where it was like, we were kind of doing like a fun, you know, we don't ever go into that these movies are so bad approach. We tend to talk about things on their own merits and our reactions to them more so than saying good or bad. But we definitely were having fun with the schlocky weirdness of this movie. And I didn't watch it for a few years. Getting ready for this conversation, I watched it twice, once with commentary and subtitles and once without. And I enjoyed it so much more this time, like knowing what it had what it was like having it kind of burned into my brain it not being so fresh what a kind of strange film it is and uh and i really did notice a lot of the things that we we zeroed in on the character bits so i think in a weird way even though somewhere in the commentary ridley scott says that he's always going for a wide audience and he basically says fuck cults i don't want a cult for any of my movies but i do think this movie is it's rare for him because it's got giant stars in it and it's this this like high ticket uh item in terms of what it is, but it, it actually has the potential to become more and more of a cult film as time goes on because it does have so much going for it. So yeah, I guess I would say the same thing. Go on the journey I did. Like it more each time you see it. <laughs> it really is an interesting movie in a lot of ways. And yeah, the little character quirks, you do notice something different each time and it feels like, oh, that was very deliberate. And that was something that, you know, this kind of generous, we said two hour, 20 minute runtime, you know, it allows for a lot of those little character quirks to come to the fore. So yeah, it's kind of a, it's just an endlessly interesting movie to me. Yeah. If you had asked me five minutes after I was done watching it, whether it was good or whether I liked it the first time I saw it, I would have told you that it was a piece of shit, but it stuck with me so much that I just kept mulling it over and thinking about things like some of the stuff that I brought up earlier, like, where did this car scene come from? Where is this from? What is happening with this? And I know Ridley Scott's a great filmmaker. I know Cormac McCarthy's a great writer. I don't think I'm giving them too much credit when I say that there's nothing in here that is just here for here's sake, that there's nothing in here that's just for titillation, just for entertainment, that there is a meaning behind every single scene and that this movie builds upon itself to a greater end. So it just stuck with me and really was kind of a splinter in my mind, just what is happening with this. And then watching it again and watching the making of really helped me understand it a lot more. And now I have to say, I still don't love it, but I definitely like it and I respect this film. And I would say that watching it one time is doing it a disservice that you really need to watch it a few times and think about this film and don't give that knee jerk reaction like I did. If you could do a, a double header with the counselor and another film, what would you pick? Watching that and no, no country last night, I thought was a really good double feature. I don't know if I'm going to be able to come up with a better double header than that, just for all the reasons that we've stated. It feels like it's even a good comparison because no country for old men has still got a little bit of that comic spin on it, you know, that this, that this movie does not have. So I do think that, it, you know, that comparison really feels like one that would bear fruit, especially watching them back to back. My initial thoughts were maybe something like Tough Guys Don't Dance because it's kind of got that insane dialogue where you can't quite keep up with it at times. And the first time I watched Tough Guys Don't Dance, I, I felt like I was watching it after being hit around the head because it was just, I, I couldn't, I, I was just felt like I was in a daze the entire time. But going back to my good friend who, who I was talking over this with, um, who's a big fan of the film as well, would probably be something like Night Moves, where it is one of those situations where these decisions lead you down a path um, and, and you, you kind of led to these moral crossroads. And maybe the main story that you think is the basis of the film isn't actually that. It's something completely different by the end. And it kind of takes you a bit surprised. Same with like an in Inherent Vice, where you think the big story 
is what's being laid out in front of you. Whereas actually, no, it's, it's something completely different. And it takes that two, three, four watches to just kind of like, ah, it, it clicks now. But I think there are definitely a few possibilities, but though, that, that would probably be my go-to for this. I, I would add maybe a couple of episodes of Better Call Saul, since you've got like the lawyer aspect, you know, and, you know, just I, or or some I was trying to think, is there another kind of like almost like a picaresque story about a lawyer who gets in over their head that's played for laughs? Because that would be another I can't nothing came to mind, but that was what I was looking for would be a, a lighter approach to sort of being in over your head, because that's what this movie is so much about is just that. You go back to the beginning and he barely had a chance, if he ever did, during the runtime of this movie to save his ass. You know, it may already have been in motion that he was he was done for by the time we meet this character. So anyway. <clears throat> what you mean a scene like when the buddy's going into the um into the tip, he goes, wah, wah. <laughs> Play for comedy. You could just do the comedy version of this. I, I'm gonna take that back. Not a double feature. Someone just do a comedy edit of this movie with like with sad trombones and yeah, like So when the green hornet gets his head cut off, it goes it could be done. Yeah, yeah. Hundred <laughs> percent. Or do, do, do some cutaways with Ruben Blades where when he's on the phone with him and he's like about he's got a, an envelope that says escape plan for the counselor. And then when he corrects his spelling, he takes that and like throws it in the fire or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, the wire flex. <laughs> well he does it at one point as well. All right, guys, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Mais ça ne dure pas. Tu es le seul à qui j'oserais proposer une affaire. Classique sur, sans risque, si elle est bien faite. Et si elle est mal faite. Je vous charge de retrouver vos gènes par tous les moyens. Et quoi qu'il vous en coûte. Vous pensez qu'il va réussir Il arrivera. Pour une fois, le gibier est intelligent. Ce sera de l'ordre de 2 milliards d'anciens francs. Près de vente. Il reste à trouver le tireur d'élite. J'ai connu il y a 4 ou 5 ans un très bon tireur. Un policier. That's right. We are kicking off a month of French film discussion as we discuss Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Circle Rouge. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, John and James. So, James, what is happening with you, sir? The podcast, The Iron Sequel, is is doing very well. I've just taken a brief hiatus over Christmas just because of work and, and family things as well. And trying to get people on board as well around the Christmas period is all a bit difficult. So I'll be starting back up with what I'm calling a bit of a, a season two in, in February. I'm going to be speaking to some people I've only speak to for a while, like uh, Robin Boogie and Travis Woods, who I think I'm going to have a real great discussion with. Yeah, the, the sequels are, are never ending. So I'm hoping some people pick some really good ones because previous guests have, have really calmly caught me off guard, especially with some Chinese category three films, which I really had to dig deep to find. But there's also some kind of madness in there as well. So uh, the Iron Sequel can be found on Apple Podcasts or, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow me at Blazing Magnums on Twitter and the Iron Sequel on Twitter as well. 
And John, what's going on with you, sir? I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of things because I have people usually they get mad at me. They're like, I heard the show you were on and you didn't mention our thing. So I'm just going to quickly say <laughs> uh, with, with with my friends, John and Chris, and usually another friend of ours named Kelly, we do a sort of improvised comedy stuff on a show called The Sketchy Show, which you can find wherever you look for podcasts. You can also find a They Might Be Giants a podcast, a mini series I've been doing since uh, early in uh, 2021. We're getting near the end, but we're not there yet. That's called Nine Secret Eps, the number nine secret eps. Look for that wherever you uh, look for podcasts. Then you can also find just general podcasts that I make of a pop pop cultural nature, sometimes comedy stuff. Uh, just look for FYIZ. Like those are the call letters for a station. Look for that wherever you look for podcasts. Is there a more overused phrase in 2021 than wherever you get your podcasts? That's, I say it too often. And then also, if you're tired of podcasts, but you just want to hear some music that I do, you can find the music of Sci-Fi. That's S-I-G-H-F-I-G-H. Most of it is on Bandcamp, but you can find it on Spotify and Apple Music, too. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. episode of the projection booth and as the end credits roll we wanted to thank you the listening audience here at the projection booth podcast with mike white host extraordinaire bang <laughs> <laughs>